0: Hear God's word from Mark chapter 13. We'll start in verse 32 and read to verse 37. This is the word of God. But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the son, but only the father. Be on guard. Keep awake. For you do not know when the time will come. It's like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening or at midnight, or when the rooster crows, or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Thanks be to God. The title of the sermon is Stay Awake. Sounds like a, a plea from a desperately boring preacher to his congregation. Stay awake, please, for one sermon. No, this, this phrase, stay awake, comes straight from our passage today, and Jesus is commanding his people to stay awake. It's, it's more like this. I'm going to read you part of The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. You may be able to predict which scene I'm going to read you. The Danger of Slumber. C.S. Lewis describes the haunting scene where little Lucy, daughter of Eve, is lured into a slumber by the fawn Mr. Tumnus, who is torn He himself is torn between serving the white witch and doing what he knows is right. Hear how Lewis describes this. As soon as they were inside the cave, Lucy found herself blinking in the light of a wood fire. Then Mr. Tumnus stooped and took a flaming piece of wood out of the fire with a neat little pair of tongs and lit a lamp. Now we shan't be long, he said, and immediately put a kettle on. Lucy thought she had never been in a nicer place. It was a little, dry, clean cave of reddish stone with a carpet on the floor and two little chairs. One for me and one for a friend, said Mr. Tumnus. On one wall was a shelf full of books. Lucy looked at these while Mr. Tumnus was setting out the tea things. And really, it was a wonderful tea. There was a nice brown egg, lightly boiled for each of them. And then sardines on toast, and then buttered toast, and then toast with honey, and then a sugar-topped cake. And when Lucy was tired of eating... The fawn began to talk. He had wonderful tales to tell of life in the forest. He told about the milk-white stag who could give you wishes if you caught him, about feasting and treasure-seeking with the wild red dwarfs and deep mines and caverns far beneath the forest floor. and then about summer, when the woods were green, and old Silenus on his fat donkey would come to visit them and sometimes Bacchus himself. And then the streams would run with wine instead of water, and the whole forest would give itself up to jollification for weeks on end. Not that it isn't always winter now, he added gloomily. Then to cheer himself up, he took out from its case on the dresser a strange little flute that looked as if it were made of straw and began to play. And the tune he played made Lucy want to cry and laugh and dance and go to sleep all at the same time. It must have been hours later when she shook herself and said, Oh, Mr. Tumnus, I'm so sorry to stop you, and I do love that tune, but really, I must go home. I only meant to stay for a few minutes. But by then, we know it was too late. Unfortunately, there are far too many pastors who try to be their own Mr. Tumnus to lull you to sleep with tunes of worldly evil agendas, but I take seriously Jesus' words here in Mark 13, so I'm going to declare to you what Jesus has said, what he has commanded. Stay awake. In an eternal, supernatural, spiritual, cosmic sense, stay awake, brothers and sisters. With the temptation to be lured to sleep by tales and ideas and myths of very pretty places, In the world around us, just the way Lucy fell prey to the evil hospitality of the fawn, Jesus commands you, be on guard. Do not sleep. Be vigilant. For you never know whether this nap will be the one when he returns and finds you sleeping. Structure for our message today is once again 3 part. First is into the unknown. Part one into the unknown. Point two, when the master of the house comes. And then the third point, stay awake. Let's look at into the unknown. We see here in verses 32 and 33, Jesus is changing topic from last week. He starts off by saying, but concerning that day or that hour. That one phrase is loaded with multiple words of transition, first of all, but concerning. He's he's changing topic here. And then he calls it that day or that hour. He also calls it in the next verse, that time. He's now speaking of something specific. That day. What is that day? He's not talking about a birthday. He's not talking about a holiday. He's talking about a word that the Christians understood in that day, a phrase that means the day of judgment. The day of Christ's return. Watch out for that day. Concerning that day or that hour, no one knows. In the last section, in the last, uh, last week's sermon, Jesus was talking about those days, specifically in reference to the question the disciples had asked. But he's changed the topic now. He had given warning signs before, about when the, de- when the destruction of the temple would come, but now he gives no warning signs at all. And in fact, states the opposite, no one knows. But why a change in topic? Why did he abruptly change? Because the disciples had not asked about this. They had asked about the destruction of the temple. But we learned last week that the destruction of the temple is a prefiguring of the destruction of the world. And so Jesus tells them, yes, you're asking about the destruction of the temple, but I must tell you what this ultimately points forward to so that he can help them beware for what is coming. And that is the destruction of all wickedness when he returns in judgment. And he says, no one knows the timing of that day. Verse 33, be on guard, keep awake for you do not know when the time will come. says not even the angel knows the angels know N- not even the son and what he's doing here he's actually laying out a hierarchy no one knows not even you nor the angels nor the son but only the father he says in verse 33 you do not know when the time will come and then in verse 35 you do not know this is a parallel statement You do not know when the master of the house will come. So that's what he's referring to. Nobody knows when the master of the house is going to come. No one knows. You do not know. The angels do not know. Not even the son knows. And that leaves us with a big question mark. How can the son not know? We're talking about Jesus Christ. Why doesn't the son know when the master is coming back? Well, first, I feel like it is necessary for me to define for you the Trinity. Although we cannot do that fully, God has revealed truths about his being, three in one. I like the way the Athanasian Creed puts it. It starts like this. We worship one God in Trinity and the Trinity in unity. That is three persons, one substance, neither blending their persons nor dividing their essence for the person of the father is a distinct person. The person of the Son is another, and that of the Holy Spirit still another. But the divinity of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is one. Their glory equal, their majesty co-eternal. Is that confusing enough? Three persons, one God. God is one. He has also shown himself to be three persons. And it's important for us to look at how the Trinity has interacted with Christians, with the world, in redeeming humanity. Because when you look at redemption, you see that the three persons of the Godhead function in redemption distinctly, with individual roles. The Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit do not work against each other. In fact, they work together, but they have distinct functions. The Father is the one who loved and sent, but the Son and the Spirit also love. Jesus is the one who came. Jesus is the one who chose to submit himself to the Father and to do the Father's will always... And Jesus is the one who became fully human. He became fully human and the spirit applies the work of Christ to believers and he dwells with believers and will bring them home. Therefore, it's proper to say that in their saving acts, the father and the son and the Holy Spirit have unique, distinct roles, never contradictory, always in cooperation. Jesus himself has two natures. He is fully divine and he is fully human, both in one. John 5, uh, Jesus says this. Truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what the father, only what he sees the father doing for whatever the father does that the son does likewise. Does that mean that the second person of the Trinity is inferior in power? No, but it means that Jesus, as the son of God who took on full humanity, who made himself nothing, as we read in Philippians 2, has chosen to be the one who obeys the Father and does nothing of his own accord except by what the Father commands and gives to him. So it does not deny Jesus' divinity to say that as a man, as the second person of the Godhead, in his role of obedience to the Father, wherein he has made himself nothing, it is not inconsistent to say that his perfect, proper human knowledge includes learning and growing. That's human knowledge. And the Father has not revealed to Jesus at that time when he would return. And in the Trinity, this is fully consistent with his full divinity and full humanity. It's important to note that in this, Jesus speaking as a human, as a full human, exemplifies for us exactly how we need to respond in a situation like this. Jesus says, I don't know the end. I don't know the time. But his response is not one of fear or anxiety. His is one of comfort and confidence and trusting in the Father. And that's what we do. When we're in a situation where we don't know how things are going to go, we don't know the timeline, we also are to, in comfort and confidence, have faith in the Father and trust that he is the one who has designed all this for his glory and our good. It's also really important to note, I mentioned this a minute ago, the hierarchy that Jesus is laying out. You have no one, not even you, not even the angels, not even the son, not even the father. Jesus is exalted above the angels in that hierarchy. That is a bold claim for a Jewish person to make. They had such a high view of angels. So for the son, this human to be above angels is to put him beside God. This is a claim to Jesus' divinity. Remember, Mark is written in the pre-heresies era. There were not all these uh, heresies creeping in, eating away at the church's doctrine. So for Mark to call Jesus the Son above the angels with such proximity to the Father is to exalt Him and to declare Him with remarkable glory. To declare that He has all authority and power and prestige And all that is due to this Jesus of supernatural and heavenly authority. You remember at the very end of last week's section, Jesus has just said that his words will never pass away, even if heaven and earth do. And indeed, it is God's word, Christ's word that will endure. So now we've moved into this unknown territory about this future day that nobody knows about. Let's figure out what's going to happen on that day. Part two, when the master of the house comes. That day is when the master of the house is going to come. This we see in verses 34 through 36. Verse 34 says this It is like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. That's what Jesus is doing. He's the one who is going away, who's saying, You must remain on guard. You're the doorkeeper, everyone has his own role. But he's saying to all stay awake, be ready for when I come back. And this is parallel to Mark's, uh, excuse me, Matthew's telling of this in Matthew 24, and it's also similar to Matthew 25's telling of the three stewards with the talents. The master gave 5 talents to one servant, 3 talents to another and 1 to the last. The first two took what they had been given and were faithful and used them and worked them for the glory of the Master. The third one was afraid and stuck his talent in the ground and didn't even get interest on it. When the Master returned, he was upset with the one who failed to labor and work. We see in these analogies that the waiting period is temporary, there is an end. We're in an in-between phase. Christ, who is the master, was here and he will be back. There's a purposeful direction to this life on earth and how we do what we do and why we do what we do. A glorious event is coming. So for those who dwell in this time, there is much expected of us. I'm speaking to you. There is much expected of you. You have been given talents. Everything you have is a gift from above and each person has his own work to do. And it is all to be used for his glory, the master's good. And it will all be returned to him anyway. So steward it well. Those who anticipate that he's coming back are most able to live faithfully with what they have. And that's our job, to be faithful stewards. There's another analogy used in these descriptions of the master coming back that is Closely tied and as parallel to this analogy of a master with his servants, it's the analogy of the groom and the bride. You've heard of this, the bride of Christ. There are many passages referring to brides or, or the virgins being prepared for the wedding feast. And of course, Jesus, being the husband, is soon to be united to his bride. Matthew 25 says, Then the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. As the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. But at midnight there was a cry, here's the bridegroom, come out to meet him. In this parable, some were ready and some were not. Some had not been vigilant. Some had not done what they knew they were supposed to do because they weren't sure when the bridegroom would come. So they took that as an opportunity to be lazy rather than to be diligent. The wicked ones were sleeping on the job, unprepared, and they were barred from the wedding. They were not allowed to enter. So, what happens when this master comes? What happens when the groom comes? What are we waiting for? What are we staying awake for? First, I'll say that when the groom comes, when the master comes, he's coming in judgment. When Jesus returns, he's coming in judgment. Listen to how Isaiah puts it with poignant language. It says, For behold, the Lord will come in fire, and his chariots like the whirlwind, to render his anger in fury, and his rebuke with flames of fire. For by fire will the Lord enter into judgment, and by his sword with all flesh. And those slain by the Lord shall be many. That is a bloodbath. And like he came against the temple in AD 70 from last week's passage, so will he come again against the wickedness of the world. Like he struck down the prideful, the gossips, the slanderers, those who disobey their parents, those who fail to forgive, the idolaters, the sexually immoral, those who worship falsely. So he's going to strike down and cast into the eternal lake of fire in judgment all wickedness when he returns. Those who are asleep on the job will not be ready for that day. But for those who are ready, the master also comes to make all things new. For those who are ready, the groom is coming for a glorious celebration. He comes as the master to his estate and he entrusts the faithful ones with even more than he originally had given them. And he's going to give them the inheritance to the faithful ones, those who are, not, who are no longer slaves, those who are sons, those who are adopted, and he's going to bestow blessing upon blessing upon blessing an inheritance that is undefiled, imperishable, kept in heaven for you. And he comes as the groom to be wed to his bride who's been waiting with eager longing. And it's all looking forward to this marriage supper of the Lamb in Revelation 19 where we read, Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. Are you clothed in white linen, church? Are you ready to see Jesus he will come as the creator who makes all things new. We find this just two chapters later in the book of Revelation. Imagine all this wickedness that we see around us and in us. It's going to be judged on that day, eradicated. That nagging sin, gone. The deep brokenness in the face of senseless, hateful murder, gone. Tears of pain, gone. Mixed intentions, gone. Gone. Those dark nights of the soul, gone. Only light. The closeness of God to cheer us eternally. Only a good new creation, only perfect worship. <coughs> Jesus will come as God who will make his dwelling place with his people and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God And he will come saying, it is done. I am the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end to the thirsty. I will give from the spring of water of life without payment. What a glorious day we long for when he makes all things new. But when's it going to be? No one knows. It's going to come suddenly. We're told that in verse 26, excuse me, 36. Lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. See, in verse 35 as well, Jesus says, Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or in the morning. These four times of day are the four watches of the Roman day. One commentator puts it this way. Mark includes the four Roman watches of the night for the benefit of his Gentile readers. In the Passion narrative, that is what we're about to get to, where Jesus is about to go and die... In the Passion narrative, three of the four watches will be mentioned again. So this is kind of an introduction to to Passion Week. Three of the four watches will be mentioned again, but the disciples will fail to watch in the first two. And in Gethsemane, they will be reprimanded five times for their failure to watch. You know how Mark has been about misunderstanding and how the disciples have failed to get it and failed to get it and failed to get it. That's what this is again. And so the question is, are you going to fail like the disciples? Are you going to learn from their mistake? And are you going to keep watch? 1 Thessalonians 5 also has a famous line on when Christ will come. It says, For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. Nobody's ready for a thief to come at night, saying, Tonight's the night. In fact, the world is going to be saying there's peace and security and then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman and they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief, for you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. That's our calling, Christians to stay awake, to not sleep. So let's focus in on that now. Part three, stay awake. What does this mean? What does this look like for you and for me living here in 2023 in Northeast Ohio? When Christ comes, will he find us awake? Let's talk about what that might look like. Because Jesus, very specifically, in in a unique literary sense, he takes this analogy and weaves the disciples into the analogy. You may notice there in verse 35. Verse 34 is the analogy. Verse 35, he says, Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come. He's very literally saying you have a master of the house, just like this analogy I just used. You do not know when your master of the house is coming. You have one job, stay awake. Watch is the most important word in this whole all of it discourse. This is what one commentator puts it this way, he says, "Watch is the word of Jesus to the twelve, the word of Mark to his readers, and the Word of the Spirit to believers in every age. The end is un- unknown and will come suddenly. Live in constant readiness. Watch. Watch out. Stay awake. In order to stay awake, this goes without saying, you can't sleep. So let's focus on that for a moment. Do not sleep. Is your soul? sleep is your spirit asleep i'm asking each one of us to assess have you been hitting snooze on your soul of course we're not speaking of physical sleep we're speaking of the kind of sleep that lucy daughter of eve fell into A sleep that begins with friendship with those who are driven by the wind, convictionless. It's followed by taking to heart their beautiful stories and ideas, which sound so alluring and yet are filled with poison. And then by then, forgetfulness leads to slumber. Luke's telling of this is more pointed than even Mark's. Luke says it like this Watch yourselves lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation, that is hangovers and drunkenness and cares of this life. And that day will come upon you suddenly like a trap for it will come upon all who dwell in the face of the whole earth, but stay awake at all times. Listen to what he says to do, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are going to take place and to stand before the son of man. When the son of man comes, will you be ready or are you asleep? This word sleep is defined by the biblical and Greek journals, the definitions, um, dictionaries as deficient concentration or the inactive or vegetative life. I think that's really important for us. Did you hear that? Deficient concentration or the inactive or vegetative life. This is convicting for us because as Americans, we are very quick to rest, to put it nicely. We are lazy people. We do not naturally think ourselves through everything either. We're creatures of habit and we we normally just take the path of least resistance. Whatever's going to be easiest, whatever feels best, that's the path we're going to take. But Jesus lovingly tells us, don't do that. Don't sleep. It's so effortless to sleep and to just give in to what the world says. It's a sweeping tide. Why not just go with it? But going with that tide is dangerous. The word vegetative makes me think of vegging out, sitting down, doing nothing. Is that what we've done with our souls? We're just lazy. It's so much easier if we just don't worry about it. It's not, let's not really examine. Let's not really make ourselves grow. Let's not push ourselves. Brothers and sisters, examine your souls. Is it filled with living things, with Christ's words of life, with his fellowship of saints, with communion with the risen Savior? But even for those who are in church all the time, examine your life and your soul. Do you commune privately with your God? Do you read his word? If not, how will you know what a lie looks like from my mouth or anyone else's? Do you pray? Only unbelievers don't pray. Do you pray, brothers and sisters? Is your soul being exercised, pushed? Is it growing? Do you have sore muscles in your soul? Or has your soul atrophied from lack of use? Examine the little sins that you've let creep in. Again, keep hitting that snooze button on dealing with that sin. Keep hitting snooze on approaching that person. Keep hitting snooze on forgiving that family member. Stop hitting snooze. Stop doing the easy thing. These sins don't seem so egregious, but they don't need to be egregious in order to drag you to hell. It takes no effort to snooze yourself to hell. These are the songs of death that put you to sleep, gently pull you toward the edge of the cliff. Oh, but they're so easy, aren't they? They're like nodding off. Instead of facing what needs to be done, it is your duty as followers of Jesus Christ not to sleep. And Jesus has warned you don't sleep. Don't sleep to the tune of your natural sinful sinful tendencies and don't sleep to the tune of the world. They are the lullabies of the devil. And if the negative is don't sleep, the positive is stay awake. Stay awake. There are no lazy seasons of the Christian life. There are no lazy seasons of the Christian life. We don't take vacations from growing in Christ. We don't take vacations from being on duty, from being vigilant, from being awake. Our God never slumbers nor sleeps, and neither do those who are spiritually alive. We long for vacations. We live for the weekend. That's built into our culture so that we can just give up and let go and do what we want for a time. That is the path to spiritual death. We do not take vacations as Christians. Your soul must always be tended. Your heart must always be drawn to Christ more and more. Do not sleep. Stay on guard against the sin that so easily entangles. Paul tells us in Ephesians 5 Awake, O sleeper! Arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Look carefully then how you walk. How are you walking in this world? submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Does that sound weird to talk about Jesus and to sing about Jesus together? Why is that weird? Because our culture says so. They're on the path to destruction. Let's not let them define how we relate to one another and how we walk. Let's look carefully how we walk. Let's do the will of the Lord. And as we stay on guard, we're also keeping our eyes fixed on heaven fixed on the destination, fixed on that day when the Master does come, even if we don't know exactly when it will be, or even remotely when it will be. Paul's words in 2 Timothy 4 are very relevant here for for how we should live with our eyes set on heaven. So let me read to you a few verses from 2 Timothy 4. He says, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead. And by his appearing and his kingdom, listen to his charge to Timothy, preach the word. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. In other words, day or night, all four watches of the night, preach the word. For the time is coming when people, listen, these are sleepers, when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they'll accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. Do we not see that around us? And are we not tempted to just go listen to the people who tell us what we want to hear? No, let's be people who preach the word and listen to the word. Let's not be those who turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths as for you, Paul says, always be sober minded, enduring suffering. Do the work in an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. And then Paul reflects on his own life. And he says, I have fought the good fight. Sometimes you have to fight to stay awake. Paul says, I fought the fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Fight and race, neither of them implies ease. That's our life as Christians. And then listen to what Paul says. This is glorious. He says, henceforth, there is laid up for me that crown of righteousness, which is the Lord, the righteous judge, excuse me, which the Lord, the righteous judge will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. That's what we keep our sight on with eyes in heaven. You're not going to lose sight of reality as the world is nodding off because they forget what's actually happening, we keep our eyes in heaven. And here's the reality. Jesus has offered himself as a sacrifice to make you his. Dear believers, you are his. You are his bride. Your life is kept safe in heaven with him. And all these things in this world around us are not your life. Jesus gave himself up for his bride. He died to pay for her sins, to save her from the dreadful wages she deserved. And why did he die to make her or to, to save her, to make her holy? He died that we would become a bride who was ready to meet the groom on that last day. This process that we call sanctification is something we willingly participate in. We kill sin by the spirit's power. We work out the salvation for it's God who works in us. We do not live in darkness for we've been brought into the kingdom of light. You know the dark spots in your life. I don't. Maybe your dark spots where you're asleep have to do with your actions or with laziness or with words that you say or thoughts that you think or addictions or greed or unforgiveness or pride or something else. Let the light shine even in there and be forgiven, and be made holy, and be ready for that day. He's actively making us holy so that we, the church, might be presented to him in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that that she should be holy and without blemish. And on that last day, we'll be at the marriage supper of the Lamb. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. And it was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And will you and I ever perfectly put on that white robe? From our actions, no. We're stained. It's the righteousness of Christ that we will wear to that feast. It's what he has done that will save us, and it's in that righteousness that we live. But for those who are not in Christ, I beg you, wake up. Do not sleep. This is eternity at stake. There is an option for your sins to be wiped away. And you too will be ready. You can wake up from the slumber that the world has used to lull you to sleep into a deadly sleep. Wake up. Look to Jesus. Find life in him. Now and forever. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we long for that day when Christ will return. We look to Christ and admit we are not enough, but He is. Help us to stay awake so that we're not drawn into the lies of this world and of our own heart. Would you be with us now? Prepare us as we come to your table to taste and see how good our Lord is. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.